second podcast of the year, second interview of the year, and second time using my fancy dancy app that I uh, downloaded. But what you're going to hear today, hi again, welcome back to Lazy to Write. I'm your host, The Real John Baker, and um, want to thank uh, Stan Cullimore, last uh, podcast guest of the House Martins. I actually went out um, while I was back in Ottawa last week and picked up uh, the two albums on vinyl. I guess the two CDs on vinyl, the two recordings on vinyl. Uh, now part of my collection. So thank you, Stan. And I was lucky enough, I went to this record store in, in Ottawa called Legend Records on Primrose, just off of Richmond Road. Um, you should really go visit it because, man, they have everything. Um, and they had them. And I also got some Hudson Ford. Uh, and who's that, you may ask? Well, you remember back in uh, the first uh, go-round of my podcast, I interviewed John Ford of the band The Monks, but he also was of... Hudson Ford and of the Straubs. So who am I talking to today? Um, well, today I, I uh, hook up with yet another old friend. Um, I have actually been really lucky in my life, I think, to have known and know a lot of people who have done some interesting things. And this guy definitely, uh, you know, falls into that category. He's a Montreal filmmaker, um, Paddington Bear enthusiast, amongst other things, a hemp advocate, and uh, you're going to hear all about it. His name is Ezra Seuferman. And uh, at the end of this, when I come back on and thank you for listening, I'm going to have all of his information uh, where you can go to find his uh, social media, his website, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we talk a lot uh, about, like I said, uh, his uh, mar- or hemp advocacy, marijuana advocacy, advocacy, <laughs> his wardrobe. We talk about... Um, what else would we talk about? We talk about Montreal food and food institutions in Montreal. We talk about uh, uh, his trip to the United Kingdom with his daughter and his love affair of Paddington Bear and so many other things. It's a roller coaster. It's a candy store. It's just a panacea of information today. So thanks for listening. And uh, I think you're going to like this. You're going to have to forgive about uh, 15 minutes into the interview, uh, the computer crashed and I had to call him back on my fancy dancy app. So we talk about, uh, you'll, you'll notice the quality change tremendously, but he was a great sport and put up with my uh, technical hijinks. And uh, thank you for listening. Here it is, my chat I did with uh, my old friend and uh, a really interesting guy, Ezra Seuferman. Enjoy it. What we'll start with then yeah. Is if you don't mind me asking, um, like your background, you have an interest in the the plant, the 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 marijuana plant, right? Yes. As a as a medicinal uh, plant, what else? Tell me, tell me about like why are you why do you care? Like why what what interested you in it as a as a medicinal uh, healing source? If that's fair, it's very fair. Okay. My interest in Uh, marijuana actually takes a step further back. So marijuana is part of the plant cannabis. And cannabis is kind of like jazz. That's the way I see it. Jazz is a whole spectrum of different styles of music. And some jazz will make you chill out, and some jazz will make you dance, and some jazz will be very experimental. So cannabis is like that. And the versatility of that cannabis plant and all the different parts of it and effects of it and uses for it. That's what fascinates me most. 
I first got interested in this back in 93. I was in New York living there and going to NYU film school. And a buddy of mine named Mark Ostrich and myself, we started to create this film, a uh, script for a short film called Pressure Drop. And it was a medical marijuana movie. And so, sorry, back, I just, I just want to interrupt. Back then, nobody's really doing anything in North America with mar medical marijuana, right? People are using it medicinally. Uh, not very many people, not like today. Uh, but on the film scene, no, there was virtually nothing. And when we look back, when we've researched back, there was a lot of, you know, Cheech and Chong stuff mm -hmm. and Reefer Madness stuff and comedy stuff about marijuana. But there was next to nothing that was medicinal. So we've been told that we created with Pressure Drop the first medical marijuana movie. It was a short comedy, not a documentary, um, about a Jewish grandfather who was losing his vision from glaucoma. And the doctor says, look, you know, you, you need an operation for this. And he says, I won't have an operation. I'm not stepping foot into a hospital. He was completely anti-operation. So the doctor says, look, the only other thing that could work at this point is marijuana. What? Dope. <laughs> so he freaks out. His wife freaks out. And the movie kind of follows his progression as he discovers what this treatment is. He goes to this outpatient self-help group of seniors who are taking this for their different ailments, and his life changes. Crazy things happen. I don't want to give it away, yeah. but if people want to see this movie, it's now 25 years old, wow. and this 18-minute comedy has played at over 25 film festivals, and it, it really opened up our career, and we put it online. We built a website for it in 1994 or 95. Okay. The website is still up there okay. uh, in, its, in its original state, and you could watch the movie. So it's pressuredrop.com. All right. And uh, that's, that's how my career pretty much got started. Okay. And from there, uh, I'm sure you have all sorts of questions, but from there I learned what cannabis is. I learned about medical marijuana. I learned about recreational marijuana. And I learned about my true love in the cannabis space, which is hemp, industrial hemp, which is the functional, industrial, commercial uh use it for all types of different purposes, plant that is the sister to marijuana. It won't get you high, but it'll do a heck of a lot of things like clothing and food and paper and uh, fiber and oil and plastics, uh, nanotechnology. It's amazing what I've learned and what, what hemp can actually do. So why aren't we doing more with it then? Excellent question. The, the answer is we are, but on a very small scale. So there are people in Colorado who are now growing it and in Kentucky and in Europe and in China and in Canada. And now, as of December 20th this past year, the United States, it's fully legal to grow it in the United States. So it's starting. It has started. And the companies are out there. They're just usually fairly small, these hemp companies. And they're doing soaps and clothing and shoes and bags. Because I've been so fascinated by it, I've researched these companies, I've gone to visit their factories, I've met these people at trade shows, and my interest continues to grow. I've never once been bored by hemp in all these 25 years. Um, because the articles keep flowing in and the industry keeps growing, I keep reading and I keep want, wanting to meet more people in the field, to try more, to buy more. So I wear hemp all the time. I'm okay. wearing this uh, hood lamb jacket, which is 
uh, designed in Amsterdam and made in this uh, factory, this ethical factory in China, and wearing hempies, hemp jeans from Colorado. Uh, I've got my hemp socks on. I've got, like, I'm all hemp all the time here. I just had hemp for lunch on my Indian food, hemp oh. seeds on my Indian food. Uh, I've got hemp hand cream on. I'm mashuga for this stuff. So when you ask, why aren't we doing it more? I couldn't possibly doing it, be doing it more yeah, right. over here. Uh, hair but, wash? Hair care products? Uh, I washed my hair with hemp, hemp? soap this okay. morning. Okay. Um, you, oh, I even have hemp glasses. Hold on. Let me take these ones okay. off. I know this is a podcast. It's all saying, audio. I was going to say the listeners should know Ezra is removing his glasses now and putting on another pair of glasses. Here we go. That are fantastic Ooh. looking. So they're made out of hemp uh, bioplastic. Okay. Basically, they take the stalk of hemp, they chip it up, and then they take the fibers out and they press it into these beautiful, fancy frames. Um, this is all done by hand in Scotland and I know the guy who does it and I bought a pair off him and he sent them to me. I got lenses at my local lens place in Montreal and now I got hemp glasses. Wow. Wow. So I actually want to talk to you about something I discovered recently, uh, which falls into this family is the CBD creams. Yes. So I was told I, I was able to get them here in America, but I was told that the cream isn't available in Canada, but the oil is? is that, am I right or wrong on that? So you're partly right, you're partly wrong. Okay. It's uh, really confusing and complicated. The reality is that CBD, many people use it for all types of ailments. Some people swear by it. Some people have tried it and it hasn't quite worked. But those who have tried it and it's worked, I've, I've heard firsthand stories of incredible things happening. Mm -hmm. um, one friend of mine, he uses it. He takes a little bit of it, and all of a sudden, his ankles, which hurt him all the time, they're like, they don't hurt me anymore. Yeah. Five minutes, they don't hurt. This is a miracle. So that's like proof in the pudding for me. Um, in Canada, in order to get CBD legally, you have to buy it from a licensed producer of cannabis. Okay. Okay, so these are, there's about 130 companies across Canada that have licenses from Health Canada to produce medical cannabis and or recreational cannabis. Those guys can grow marijuana plants and extract marijuana, but they could also extract CBD, the molecule that is non-psychoactive right. that could be put into cream, into oils, into food, into drinks, etc., etc. And that is the stuff that some people swear by. Yeah. There's a lot of research going into that now because I mean, who wouldn't want to take marijuana that works uh, very similarly to marijuana, but doesn't make you high. It, it can have all sorts of medical uh, effects in some cases that could be great for people who need it. Well, so what what does it actually do, though? Because I, I bought some for my wife because she had um, a problem with her shoulder. And sure. I was told, like, it sort of seeps into the skin as, and is absorbed by the nerve. Am I off base yeah. here? Yeah. Well, as they say, the, the skin is the largest organ of our body, and it essentially drinks and breathes uh, very efficiently, usually. And if you had some CBD-infused hand cream, you would put that on to the place where it hurts. Now, again, I'm not a doctor. Right. No, I didn't say it before, but I'll say it now, and I'll, you should know it later on, too. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I've just read a ton about this stuff. Uh, I wouldn't even dare playing a doctor on TV. That's how much not a doctor <laughs> not I am. A doctor. Okay. Um, uh, so you would rub it on where it hurts, and then the molecule, the CBD molecule, would go to the receptors inside your 
uh, nerves inside your body, however you take it, and it would affect the receptors in such a way that could help the inflammation, the pain, uh, the soreness, the tiredness, the stiffness, the spasms, uh, the uh, seizures. It has been said to work on all these different conditions, uh, migraines, headaches, uh, fatigue, hangovers. Like People will say everything and anything, but in many anecdotal cases, that's actually what's happening. Yeah. CBD is helping them. Yeah, no, she did notice some relief from it. Um, Good. Now, I do... I have seen, like, on your Instagram and on your uh, website, you have an an, an affiliation with a uh, place that was near Ottawa with Tweed. And now, so what is that all about? So for tell, I mean, tell people what Tweed exactly is, and and uh, and then what you're doing with them. Tweed is based in the old Hershey's Chocolate Factory in Smiths Falls, Ontario, and these guys basically. Um, the town had uh, Hershey's picked up and left about 10 years ago. And they moved their business down to Mexico and back into the States. And the town of 10,000 was left essentially high and dry, pardon the pun, or dry and not high. And then these guys, these entrepreneurs, essentially found the town. They were Ottawa guys with like a tech background and government background. They found this town and they said, this is perfect. Let's set up a licensed legal marijuana facility, and we'll get uh, we'll get things going and see how it goes. Anyhow, uh, make a long story short, Tweed has become essentially the world's largest cannabis company. Okay. Their parent company, which was spawned out of Tweed, is called Canopy Growth, and they've become massive in now over, I think they're now in 15 countries around the world. Just today they announced that they've uh, set up deals in... Uh, the UK and Poland, but they're also in uh, South America and Jamaica and Canada. Everywhere that that, uh, cannabis is legal, these guys are looking to do some cool things. And I got involved with them. So in 2014, I was uh, preparing and just starting to film a documentary all about cannabis edibles with a Montreal comedian named Mike Patterson. And Mike is a really jovial guy and normally in awesome spirits. But when I bumped into him, uh, he told me he was in great pain from this horrible sciatica he was having, a pain down his leg and in his back. And I said, oh, I'm actually doing a film, uh, about to start filming about edibles. And uh, we're looking for a host for the film. And uh, he said, well, uh, you should know about this thing about me. Nobody knows that I have this horrible pain and uh, I'd be happy to be in your movie. So I told the producers and they said, look, forget about him being a host. Let's make the movie about him. So we started filming this movie called Grass Fed. And it's all about how Mike turns his life around with cannabis edibles. And as part of the movie, I wanted to go see where his medical cannabis was being grown. So we called it Tweed in uh, Smith's Falls, Ontario. And we said, uh, I said, listen, I got this guy who's a patient of yours. Can we follow him out and see his uh, stuff being grown? And they said, come on out. So that's how I first met this company. I had read about them. I read the story about their, you know, going to the Hershey's Chocolate Factory. And I knew right away that there was something smart about this company. And sure enough, 
uh, we filmed a great scene out there, and it's in the movie Grassfed, which is now on iTunes and Google Play, and it's played on CBC's documentary channel in Canada, Australia, etc. And uh, through that, I got to know the company. And then one night, I had this brainwave about artists and residents. Now, do you know what an artist in residence is? Yeah, um, I actually had an aunt who was an artist in residence out in Newfoundland, but um, for painting. But t- tell tell me more about that and what it, exactly it is. So, yeah, basically, an artist in residence gets taken on by either a studio or a gallery or a museum to come and work there and create their art, and they get supported by the gallery with space, with an honorarium, and with just general kind of support for an artist to to uh, allow them to do their work. And I have this brainwave that I've never heard of a marijuana company having an artist in residence. And I said, you know what? I think that that company Tweed should have one, and I think that it should be me. So I told my friend this, and I said, hey, you know, what do you think of this idea? He said, it's brilliant, and nobody could do it as well as you because you're absolutely sugar about cannabis. You're a, a working artist with all sorts of stuff going on. And, uh, yeah, you should, you know, pitch them the idea. So I wrote up this whole, uh, like, very tight proposal, one page, explaining how it would work. And I waited until the day after my movie, Grass Fed, aired on CBC's Doc Channel. And when I heard back from the uh, president of the company that he loved my movie, I, and he said, listen, the door's always open for you to, you know, if you have other, other ideas, you let us know. So a day later, I FedExed him a proposal for, to be their artist in residence. Long story short, he loved the idea, and they signed me on to be their artist in residence for a year. And I got a budget to travel around the world shooting whatever art project I wanted, whether it was cannabis-related or not. And I basically took, like, hundreds of photographs that year, got to travel to about a dozen different cities, uh, got an honorarium, got money for equipment, and had the time of my life, all because this, this you know, cannabis company in a chocolate factory thought that it was a good idea to support an artist. And uh, it, was, it was life-changing. Now, since you've done that, has, has any other um, marijuana company uh, embraced that idea? Or is this, is this still just tweed? Um, I've heard of other artistic initiatives happening since then, yes, but nothing that was specifically an artist in residence. Um, but definitely since then I've seen, um, art shows where they, uh, feature different artists who are doing cannabis photography. I've seen, uh, kind of artistic and artist based initiatives by different, uh, licensed producers of cannabis in Canada and some in the States too. So there, there is uh, more collaboration between companies and artists. And that's music to my ears um, because I, I think that there needs to be more of a, more of the fun side of cannabis. You know, ultimately, one of the reasons that people use it is to, to have a good time. And mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't perceive of this versatile plant solely as medicine or solely as industrial fabric and hemp stuff, or solely as recreation. We need to kind of um, understand that this plant has so many different uses. And as we explore and research and try the many different uses, 
we'll get to know it better and we'll see what it offers. So my side happens to be the artistic side, and that's become my specialty. And I'm, I'm now still involved with Tweed and with their parent company, Canopy Growth, as a, a business development consultant. So through my travels over the many, uh, over like 25 years of cannabis research, um, I've met all sorts of cool people who are now up to incredible things. So with my role at Canopy, I bring these people into the Canopy awareness or into the sphere. And I bring Canopy also into other people's awareness and sphere. And, you know, good things happen. So that's, that's a little bit of what I do with those guys, and I love it. I, I love what they've done, and it's, it's really nice to be involved. Why, um, why do you think, you know, let's say within the last 25 years since you've been doing this, the sort of the social norms surrounding cannabis use have changed so much? Is it economics? Is it uh, like uh, looser, um, I don't know, I want to say morals, but like just a, a, a loosening of like our, our, our uptightness? I don't even know if that's a word. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a word. Because um, it's like North America, really. Like in Europe, like let's forget about that. Because it's always like Europe seems to always be ahead, right? Would that be fair? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, that's a big generalization, but with cannabis, I mean, Amsterdam has been going strong yeah. for uh, decades now with that, but they've fallen behind. Oh, okay. Um, things in North America have definitely changed. California was was pretty much the original as far as really pushing the boundaries, changing laws, opening things up. California is uh, something like the fifth biggest economy, I think, in the world. It's massive. And the, uh, the cannabis industry there is quite mature, but it's not perfect. And in the years since cannabis, since uh, California first uh, legalized medical use, which was back, I believe, in 96, with uh, Proposition 215. In the years since then, it's almost like California has kind of fallen behind places like Colorado in, uh, and Washington State and other places to some extent, but now California's catching up. And now, like you said, the, the general social acceptance mm-hmm. of cannabis, both as a medicine and as adult use recreational, uh, has changed drastically. And we're now seeing that you know, the, the polling and the surveys about the acceptance of, of cannabis is through the roof. There's almost nothing that Americans agree on as much as the fact that, that cannabis shouldn't be illegal across the board. So, slowly, yeah, slowly but surely, things have changed a lot, and they're continuing to change um, drastically. I, I like to call it that we're now in the, the cannabis big bang and we're seeing everything happening. People are trying this, and they're trying that, and they're researching this, and they're, you know, pushing in all directions. And from that, we're going to have this world that emerges that understands the plant better and has a, a greater sense on how it can be used to the benefit of people and the planet. And for me, that's exciting, because why not? It's a plant. And if we can right. uh, grow this plant, uh, for our benefit and with the respect that the plant deserves, great. If the economy benefits, if people benefit, no problem. As long as things are done, you know, it's, as ethically as possibly, as uh, safely, things are tested, no problem. It's, it's when things get dirty or, or uh, corrupted 
then that's always a problem, no matter what industry. But let's right. let's try to keep it clean. It it seems like though the like the general um, like uh, atmosphere, I guess, surrounding the the culture of hemp and and cannabis is more um, compassionate towards like the the creation of the products. Is that fair to say, or is that just a ridiculous statement? <laughs> no, it's not ridiculous. Um, the hemp side of things. Um, it's really, it's really interesting to see because, you know, they call them hempsters, like people who really believe in the plant. Mm-hmm. The original modern hempster or a hemp uh, advocate was a guy named Jack Herrer. And Jack lived in California. He was originally from New York, I believe. And uh, he discovered marijuana kind of late in life in his like 20s or so. And he moved out to California and... He then started researching hemp and discovering all this stuff that had been essentially either lost or hidden and suppressed about the hemp plant. And he wrote this book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And it's now been through like dozens of printings. It's uh, it's known as the Bible of hemp. Okay. He released it at some point in the 80s. And I saw it for the first time in about 93 which is 25 years ago when I was researching Crusher Drop, the short film, and I read it, and right away I was like, oh my God, why are people not using this more? Why is this such a secret? And the reason is because back in the 1930s when they took down marijuana in 1937 and made it illegal, essentially they also took down hemp. And they took down hemp supposedly because it was a threat, a massive threat to the cotton industry and the paper industry and the plastics industry, uh, and, and many different industries. It, it had the chance to become, uh, back then, a multi-billion dollar industry, a big disruptor to all these other industries. So supposedly some big dude said, no, this is not acceptable. We have to protect our cotton interests, our paper interests, etc." So through some, some manipulations, uh, hemp was essentially outlawed. And it basically disappeared from 1937 until... Jack Herrer, we discovered it. Um, it was, it's incredible, you know, and, and for this to happen with something that is so useful um, is a, a real shame, let alone uh, an economic uh, pity. And it's a crop that, sorry, it's a crop that grows a lot faster than, say, cotton. Um, no? the, 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 yeah, the great thing about hemp is that when compared to cotton, it uses far less water. Mm-hmm. Cotton uses uh, a, a great deal of pesticides. Um, they say something like anywhere from 25% to 50% of the pesticides used in the state goes to the cotton crops. Um, that's a lot of pesticides going into yeah. the land, waterways, and into farmers' lungs, etc. Hemp, on the other hand, uses less water uses either no pesticides or next to no pesticides because it's naturally pest resistant. It grows to about 12 to 15 feet tall in about three months. Um, It's renewable, it's sustainable, um, and you can make all these different things from it. So farmers love it because it gives them uh, a great uh, economic return on their land. It doesn't poison their land. Mm -hmm. And it could be used for so many different things. And then companies love it because they can use it for all these different uh, industries. And then end users like it because it's so durable. 
and you you have a pair of hemp jeans that'll last you for way longer than a pair of conventional cotton jeans. And I know this because I, my whole wardrobe is hemp, and I've got stuff in there that's 15, 20 years old that still looks like I bought it two weeks ago. And I, you know, I wash it regularly in the washer and dryer, and it's, it's great. And is the price of that stuff coming down? Yes. It, it it's is, starting huh? to come down. And people, you know, would say to me, oh, well, you know, your jeans, okay, well, they, they're more expensive. Well, well, maybe they're more expensive than your average pair of Levi's. So let's say your average pair of Levi's is, I don't know what, 60 bucks or something like that. Yeah. So a pair of hemp jeans maybe will cost you 90 bucks. But the next guy might be going out to buy a pair of $250 jeans because yeah. there's some trendy pair of cotton schmancy things. Yeah. So a $90 pair of, dollar pair of hemp jeans is a lot cheaper than a $250 pair of jeans. So as they say, like Einstein said, it's all relative, you know, uh, to, to butcher an analogy uh, beautifully. That's what I'd say. It's like, it depends on what you want to buy. The, um, it's true. I want to I circle back for a second. Um, to the to the short film to pressure drop, where uh, it was an old man who was resistant to uh, marijuana for medical purposes. Have you encountered people you've talked to maybe over the years who were resistant and then have made that switch? And and what's their story been like? Definitely, um, the subject comes up in discussions with people now all the time because they know about the work that I, I've done with Tweed, and they know about my interest in hemp. So it always tends to come up in conversation. And I've heard all sorts of stories. People who, uh, you know, their mother would never, uh, was always against it. And then she had some problem with her knee. And then she tried it with some stuff she rubbed on. And it was a miracle and this and that. Uh, it's kind of endless, the uh, turnarounds that happen. Um, and I'm actually now hearing of like hospitals starting to allow patients to use it in the hospital and starting to research it. Um, I just got a call the other day from a big hospital in Montreal. I can't name names because uh, things haven't been kind of made official yet, but they're looking to start researching and and promoting the use of this for their patients, and they wanted to see if I was interested in talking a little further about something. So the tide has certainly changed. Um, It's refreshing to see this. It's a kind of... uh, I don't want to say I told you so, but I just knew it. I knew yeah. when I started looking into this stuff that it, it's an obvious choice. It's an obvious thing to research more. It's an obvious thing to to write about, to read about, and to understand better. Because oftentimes the results that people are seeing are are pretty wonderful. Now, not always. Sometimes it doesn't work for patients. For whatever reason, it doesn't work. And but then... I was say, but then the after effects aren't, let's say, as severe as they would be if you flooded your body with uh, like a pharmaceutical that didn't work. Right. The, the side effects from cannabis usually are uh, pretty reasonable. Uh, it could make you high. That's the first thing. And some people don't want to be high. Right. Most people don't want to be high on a regular basis when they have a medical condition. Um now, it could also make you sleepy, it could make you uh, hungry, which could lead to weight gain. So it's all about the dosage and about the, um, you know, what your doctor advises you. If you find the right 
strain of cannabis and you take it in the right dosage from the right uh, in the right format with the right doctor supervision, maybe it's going to work. Yeah. You, you kind of got to try to know. So the government of Canada, through Health Canada, has now set up a system that's been in place uh, in one form or another since uh, the 2000 that allows people to go to their doctors and ask if it can be tried. And there you go. That provides, uh, like you said, an alternative to conventional medicine. And in some cases, it'll work better. In other cases, maybe it won't. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert. But certainly the stories that I've heard have been remarkable with uh, usually uh, pretty moderate side effects. Generally speaking, how are are the majority of doctors um, on board with this or are, are some still reluctant to, to prescribe it? Many are still reluctant, very reluctant. I've, I've, I'm still hearing stories about patients who are almost kicked out of their doctor's offices for, uh, for asking their doctors about it. Huh. Um, sometimes the doctor will say, I don't know enough about it. I'm sorry, I can't prescribe anything. Other times doctors will get very defensive. Other times doctors will say, yes, I've heard that some patients are getting relief uh, from this and I don't prescribe it, but you could talk to another doctor. I'll give you a referral to a clinic that prescribes it or to another doctor who prescribes it. And in some cases, and it's definitely the minority from what I've, what I've heard, doctors will say, oh yeah, sure, I can write you a prescription for that if you want to try it, try it under my supervision. Here's a prescription. Take this to a place like Tweed and, and see how it works. And we'll, and we'll see. We'll assess it together. Wow. But in, in Quebec, um, from what I've heard, the medical board, the Collège des Médecins, has generally been pretty resistant to it and is quite cautious on the subject. But it's, it's changed over the years. And patients in Quebec, where I live, I live in Montreal, um, can usually find access through a few clinics that they have around town or from their doctors. But it's, it's not easy. But it seems like it is getting easier I, yes. in, in places. Now, I want to change gears completely um, yes. because you were just saying you're from Montreal. And one of the things also I've noticed from your posts uh, on Instagram is you have this deep, deep love affair with your city. I sure do. Uh, it's, it's, uh, what can I say about Montreal? I was born here. I've lived most of my life here. I was in New York for four years going to school down there. And then I returned to start working in documentaries. And when I stepped back into Montreal after that time in New York, I was thrilled to be back. And I started to rediscover my city and to explore it. And I still take trips to this part of town and that part of town to wander around and to you know, see new things. And I, I feel like I'm on vacation in my own city because there's always another nook and cranny to, to discover. Uh, one thing that is very close to my heart in Montreal is the food. Yeah, and, I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm a big foodie. I, I love eating. I love uh, discovering new places. I love the social aspect about food. Uh, of course, I love sprinkling hemp onto my food, sure. etc. So Montreal affords people the opportunity to go out and discover these places, and they're all over the place. Uh, because Montreal is so multicultural, we have, you know, food choices coming in from around the world. So that's amazing. Then we've got the classic Montreal places like smoked meat and bagel and things like that. 
Mm -hmm. uh, then we've got some new trendy places, and I'm actually working on a uh, web series now for the Montreal Gazette, all about these uh, kind of uh, fancy chefs and trendy chefs, and taking them out on adventures with the host Heidi Small. And we go and basically discover these places in Montreal that gives me even more chances to discover the food of my city. So I, I love it. You know, I'm like a, a kid in a candy factory in, in my city, uh, as opposed to a kid in a marijuana factory in Miss <laughs> Falls. In Miss Falls, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I love being in Montreal. My fam, a, a good part of my family is here, though, though a bunch of left. So I've got family here, I've got food, I've got a lot of friends. And I'm also, I'm a guy who likes the winter. We're deep in the winter now. We mm -hmm. just had uh, about, I don't know, seven inches or so of snow yesterday. And it, the temperature outside is like uh, seven degrees or five degrees Fahrenheit today. It's it's, it's pretty winter wonderlandy, but like the, the harsh side of winter wonderland this week. And I'm wearing my hemp long underwear, and I I couldn't be happier to get outside. But um, call, so, call me in a few weeks, and it's going to be like, okay, it's enough winter already, you know. Um, so quickly, top of your head, best smoked meat in Montreal. Well, being that I'm a vegetarian, uh, I don't I don't usually uh, enjoy a smoking sandwich these days. But I will say this. Um, I was always a Schwartz's guy, and I'm okay. still a Schwartz's guy. Okay, okay. I know so, some people have moved on from Schwartz's. They're not so thrilled yeah, with it. Have. I, I love the atmosphere. Um, I love going in there and having some fries, a pickle, a coleslaw, you know, the vegetarian special. Um, I love it, and um, that's that's my place. But I'm, I'm always happy to join someone if they go to Lester's or to the Main or... Uh, any of the other places too, because I, I think smoking is a cool thing. And best bagel? Best bagel. Uh, I like to say I'm an equal opportunity bagelist. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> However, uh, Desert Island, I would say St. Peter. Give me a, a few hundred dozen St. Peter bagels, and I'll, I'll go to that Desert Island. Yeah. Is anybody sprinkling uh, hemp on their on their bagels yet? Well, funny you should mention it. Um, I. Uh, kind of a long and drawn out story, but uh, yeah, it's been a long um, dream of mine to pioneer the hemp bagel. Sure. Because no, essentially nobody is doing it. So uh -huh. there, there's a few technical issues. You're not supposed to cook hemp over 350 degrees because it hurts the omega essential fatty acids that are plentiful in hemp. Okay. So the bagel ovens are uh, wood-fired, and they get to, I think, four or 500 degrees. So we'd have to figure something out about that. Right. But if, to answer your question, if anybody is sprinkling hemp, uh, I certainly did it last week when I had a – or earlier this week when I had a bagel, and I put beautiful hemp seeds on top of, on top of it and uh, enjoyed it with some butter, toasted. It was amazing. Okay, so it's like an everything bagel just with hemp seeds. Exactly. I'm a big. It's funny down here because in Virginia they have uh, no concept of a proper bagel, and it's yeah. embarrassing what they call a bagel here. As my as my late grandmother would say, it's a bun with a hole in it. Right. <laughs> uh, but the other thing I want to talk to you about quickly, or as long as you want to take it, is your 
again, love affair with Paddington Bear. Where did that come from? Right. So it's not such a secret love affair. Um, As you may have noticed on my blog and on my, my Instagram page, I put up a picture of me sitting there with about like 40 Paddington Bears, including my six foot tall Paddington Bear. Yeah. Uh, when I was a little kid, my grandparents got me a Paddington Bear for I think like my fourth or fifth birthday uh-huh. when I was down in Florida visiting them. And that guy who's about like uh, 18 inches tall or 14 inches tall, he was like the, the OG Paddington in my household. Okay. And, uh, his nickname is Stissy, Stissy McGee, I call him. Uh-huh. And he's, he's still kicking around, doing great. But over the years, I would you know, collect a small one and a keychain one and a this one and a that one. Then um, I had a daughter. She's nine, now nine years old. And we would get her, you know, presents here and there. And sometimes it would be a Paddington Bear. The collection has grown. Uh, mm-hmm. The six-foot-tall one I think I got around my bar mitzvah time. Oh. When, yeah, Ogilvy's <laughs> the old department store in Montreal had a six-foot-tall Paddington Bear sitting at the top of the escalator at the toy department. And I always thought it was so cool. Wow, wouldn't it be great to have a six-foot-tall Paddington Bear? So I called the company, Eden Toys, down in New Jersey, and I said, hey, do you guys sell those things? And they said, well, actually, we don't, because they're only for stores to have. But it just so happens that we have one of these demos that we were going to give away to one of our staff members, but we couldn't figure out who to give it to because everybody wanted it. And since you sound so like interested in this thing, we'll sell it to you for a couple of hundred bucks. Wow. So I had it shipped to Montreal, and uh, it's now sitting in my living room. Uh, <laughs> all these years later, like 30 years later, 40 years later, I don't even know. Um, and it's, it's in great shape, and it's, uh, it's part of my collection. So I was just in London a few months ago with my daughter, and we went to Paddington Station, and we went to the Paddington store, and it was like going to Mecca for us. Wow. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. I remember as a kid, the Paddington books, they were, they were tiny. They weren't like very large, and they, they had like a neat kind of photographic photography mixed with uh, like hand-drawn uh, painting. Do you remember those? I think I know what you're talking about. There was an animated series at one point also where it was like a real figurine, like a little fancy yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah now um, they've changed it completely now to like actual like illustrations. I want to get, I'd love to get my hands on some of those old books. Those yeah, check out eBay. There's, there's all sorts of stuff on eBay. Yeah, yeah. And the, the author just, he, he passed away recently, right? If I'm not mistaken? That's right. I put up my post when he died about six months ago, roughly. Michael Bond. Yeah. Yeah. And have you seen, what do you think of the movies? I haven't seen them. Oh, um, I enjoyed them very much. I saw both of them. Yeah. And uh, they were really well done. The uh, the look of the Paddington Bear has changed over the years. I wasn't super crazy about, you know, the design of it now. It's not bad, but it's a little less kind of cute and friendly the way I liked it. Yeah. But the movies were fantastic. And I had the chance when I was in London, I took my daughter it was crazy. So when I was studying in New York at NYU, one of my buddies uh, in film school, he graduated and went on to direct all these big Hollywood feature films, okay. like The Transporter and The Incredible Hulk. And 
his latest project is the Dark Crystal. Oh, they're yeah, they're oh. the Jim Henson movie. But okay. It's a ten episode. It's a ten episode Netflix series. Oh wow! And he said, "Hey, if you happen to be in London, come on by the set." So I said, "Wow, that's a, quite an offer." Yeah. So I I mentioned this to my daughter, and she said, "Oh my God, can we go to London?" So we ended up going to London in September. We got on set, and we saw my buddy Louis Le Carrier directing, and the camera person who was doing camera alongside Louis was the cameraman from the two Paddington movies. Oh, wow. So that's a little kind of personal con- connection to the movies, and we got to see them making the uh, Dark Crystal, which was incredible. Uh, it's real puppets. It's not CGI. Okay. Is it so, Benson as well, or is it a, a different puppet company? No, it's Jim Henson Productions, and we actually wow. got to meet we got to meet uh, Jim Henson's daughter Lisa, and we got to meet all these puppeteers. It was amazing. I was like a kid in a puppet factory. You've been in many factories, huh? <laughs> yeah, I love factories. <laughs> it's funny you talk about uh, meeting his uh, his daughter. This past summer, I was in New York. I went for one night to go see a play. Um, that was directed by Jim Henson, or no, sorry, by Frank Oz. Oh. And uh, after the show, I was outside trying to make plans to meet up with a friend, and he, it was like the third to last night of the show, too, and he happened to come to, to see it. So I had a little oh. chat with him, which was like, I mean, you know, a kid in a Muppet shop. Totally. That's great. What's the play called? Uh, it was called In and of Itself. It was a one-man show by a magician um, where he did about six different tricks throughout the show. Um, but it was also like sort of a like a self-discovery show for him and for the audience. It was really neat, and it's not playing anymore. And I really wish the guy would just, you know, pack up and take it on the road because it was such a great show. Wow. And the fact that Frank Oz, he even the, the uh, magician, Derek, I can't pronounce his last name, but he wrote something uh, on his on Twitter about like, you know, three shows left and the director was still giving me notes or something. It was really funny. Um, but it was great. And but I totally blanked and forgot to even mention like the Blues Brothers and Trading Places. When I talked to Frank Oz, I was like, I was just so starstruck, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's Miss Piggy. It's Yoda. It's everybody totally totally total legend yeah Uh, there's a a film that you could look up called muppet guys talking oh it just came out last year and it's basically uh four different muppet four or five different uh muppet puppeteers sitting around a sofa just uh, shooting the breeze and talking about being puppeteers It's, it's fantastic and uh frank oz is one of them and is that, you think it's on Netflix or is just Google it and hopefully? I don't think it's on Netflix. Uh, it's called Muppet Guys Talking, and I think it's sold through the film's website as a download. Oh, okay. I'll look into that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to wrap it up there. I think this is great. We have covered, I mean, three types of factories. <laughs> yeah. We've been all over the world with uh, hemp and with Paddington, and it's been great. Thank you so much. This was a great opportunity. Really nice to reconnect with you. And um, I, I love to uh, kind of share the, some of the exciting things that I've, I've had the opportunity to see in my career. Um, I've been doing this now for like 
uh, roughly 25 years. And the, the beautiful thing that I, I love about my career is that it's always changing. Um, some things stick with me, like stuff that I'm really passionate about, but other stuff comes my way with phone calls. Someone will call and say, hey, you know about this? We should make a movie about it, or you should look into that. So it, it, there's never a dull moment for me. And yeah. to, to get a call from you to ask me to talk about it, uh, it, it's an honor to talk to you, and I love what you're doing with your show. I've heard a few episodes now. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it's great to be a guest. We are going to circle back in a couple months, maybe, and talk about because we didn't talk about a, a ton of things too. A lot of your passions we didn't even touch on. So we're going to uh, do this again. I hope. Anytime. The door is always open, and uh, keep up the great work, John. Thank you. You too, Ezra. It was great reconnecting, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, super. Okay, take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. There it is. And once again, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Ezra for um, for being so gracious and generous with his time, because he, he really was, and it was great to talk to him, great to catch up. And I know I say that a lot. It's sort of a crutch I go back to. Great to catch up, great to talk. But a lot of these people um, who I talk to really have better things to do and other things to do. And they take time out of their days to, to chat with me about, uh, their passions. And I really appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate that, that from them. So as a promise, I told you where you can check out uh, all of his stuff. Actually, it's in one convenient location. Just go to his website, Ezra com. Uh, I want to make sure it's a .com and not, yeah, it is a .com and not a .ca. Uh, it's E- I'll spell it two ways because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm Canadian, but I'm living in the States. So it's Ezra Soiferman, all one word, E-Z-R-A-S-O-I-F-E-R-M-A-N.com, or for the Americans, E-Z, no, E-Z, what did I say? Well, you know, how, you know what I mean, E-Z-R-A-S-O-I-F-E-R-M-A-N.com, Ezra Soiferman.com. Uh, you like what you hear? Well, you can drop me a line at too lazy to write. Well, actually, no, you can drop me a line. Go to the website too lazy to write.com or on Twitter at the real John Baker or just email me if you want and uh, you can do that through the website. I don't know who I'm going to be talking to in the next few weeks, but maybe it'll just be me rambling on for, you know, 45 minutes or so. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if you're hearing this before 11:30, PM on January 21st, uh, set your DVRs to the Jimmy Fallon show because, uh, Joe Jackson's on and former podcast guest, Doug Yowell, Yowell will be drumming for him tonight. Um, he's there, they're promoting his new album fool. So you should download that or go buy it because it's available on vinyl. Thanks again for listening. Um, take care and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Too lazy to write. We're anything about.